You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to ADHD Across the Lifespan, produced in cooperation with APSART, the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, and sponsored by Concerta, a product of McNeil Pediatrics, Division of Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. Your host is Clinical Assistant Professor and Director of the Wellness Team for NYU Graduate Medical Education, Dr. Vatsal Thacker. Is cognitive behavioral therapy more effective than other types of therapy for ADHD patients? And will this therapy replace medication as the preferred treatment for ADHD? Joining us to discuss cognitive behavioral therapy for ADHD patients is Dr. Mary Salanto, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of the ADHD Center in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Salanto. Thank you. So let me ask you, why is psychosocial or psychotherapeutic treatment needed for ADHD adults? Isn't medication the treatment of choice? Well, medications, both stimulants and atomoxetine, can be very effective for ADHD in adults as well as children. But there is a subset of people who may be non-responders or only partial responders to medication. And even among optimal responders, there's most often a need to have people develop specific skills to manage their time, organize, and plan what we call metacognitive skills that they may not have developed in childhood because of the ADHD. In addition to that, there's a need to address of the comorbid anxiety and depression, demoralization that many people with ADHD have developed as a result of their repeated failure experiences, social problems, low self-esteem, and so on. So there's a need to address those with psychotherapy as well. What kind of evidence is coming out to show that CBT is effective in this population? Well, you know, research is getting underway. We've had some studies that have compared pre- and post-treatment status of people who've undergone the treatment. Those indicated robust improvements in patients. But of course, one needs always to consider, well, what would the change have been without therapy over the same amount of time? So one needs a control group, um, a weightless control, or even better, an active control uh, of people receiving some other intervention just to control for the effects of being in therapy. There have been a couple of those studies now that have just been completed and are just coming out. The first was done by Steve Safran at Harvard, one of my colleagues, who showed that people who were on medication for ADHD already, and then they were randomized to either get additional treatment in the form of CBT or were on a wait list for the same amount of time, improved more significantly when they were receiving the CBT. So then we have two NIH-funded studies to look more robustly and rigorously at the issue of how does this treatment compare to a nonspecific intervention where people are spending the same amount of time, you know, in a supportive relationship with a therapist. So it's really kind of akin to a placebo in a medication study. So how much benefit do people on CBT get compared to that kind of a control group? So we just completed such a study. We had already done actually a pilot to show very robust pre- to post-treatment gains in our patients, and we published that last year. But in this study, which we just completed, people were randomized to either get the CBT program that we developed, we call it metacognitive therapy, or a support group, both for 12 weeks, two hours a week. The CBT, of course, was structured around behavioral cognitive behavioral principles. The support group was just more open-ended, supportive, um, and non-structured, 
at the end of the time, we compared the degree of change in the, the CBT group and the MCT group and the control support group and found that while both groups showed some improvement, there was significantly greater improvement in the group receiving CBT. Whether one measured that with a blind clinician, an evaluator who did not know which treatments that people had been assigned to, or by self-report on questionnaires, or even by report of others in the person's own environment, spouse, partner, colleague, friend, and so on. So we're very excited about these results, and I think they bode very well for the future efficacy and utility of this treatment for adults with ADHD. So would you, Dr. Salanta, would you say that CBT is currently state-of-the-art for non-pharmacologic treatments for ADHD? I think that there is the largest evidence base to show that it's effective among any non-pharmacological intervention. You mentioned metacognitive therapy as being almost a subtype of CBT. Can you explain the difference? You know, we call our intervention metacognitive therapy because it focuses very largely on the self-management skills that people need to manage their time, to organize themselves, to plan. These are, we call them metacognitive because they are these overarching kinds of abilities to self-manage one's time, one's day. And we don't include in that other kinds of difficulties that people with ADHD may have in the realm of impulse control or social skills or social interactional problems. So that's why we call ours metacognitive therapy. Out of curiosity, how quickly might you see results when someone undergoes a process like this? Well, we saw a change in our 12-week program. So we know that from over the course of 12 weeks, people can make significant change in these skills on these deficits. So relatively short-term considering therapy as a whole. We were pleased that, yeah, even within that amount of time, which is three months, one could demonstrate significant change. Have you identified what type of patient with ADHD might be a CBT responder versus not? You know, that's a very interesting question. And in our most recent study, we looked to see if we could identify any predictors of response. So, for example, people who are more severe, would they respond better? People with or worse, or people who had comorbid anxiety or depression. We also looked at, you know, all kinds of demographic variables, IQ, education, gender, subtype of ADHD, and none of those predicted response. So people seem to respond well to the treatment regardless of how they may have varied on those other dimensions. One may need a larger sample size than we had. We had a total of 88, half of which received MCT and half received the support group, in order to demonstrate significant effects. But we really didn't even find any promising trends. But that's something that needs to be, I think, researched more fully. Did your study look at follow-up if the effects lasted or persisted? Yeah, that's a very important issue to address in future studies. In the scope of the study, we did. We really were not able to do that rigorously, but that would be something for our future research, most definitely, because a treatment isn't going to be beneficial if the results fade out after the treatment is concluded. So to follow people for, you know, at least a year to look at maintenance of benefits would be important and really hasn't done in any of the research yet. I should also add that 
Steve Safran at Harvard also just completed a study looking at an individually based, that is a one-to-one treatment for ADHD. Ours was delivered in small groups. His was delivered one-on-one with many of the same kinds of strategies, which were arrived at completely independently, which kind of gives us encouragement that we're on the right track here. And he compared the efficacy of his individual treatment over about the same time course compared to an individual sessions or series of sessions with a therapist in which they did relaxation training, which wouldn't have been thought to directly target the ADHD symptoms. That study, also sponsored by NIH, is just concluding, and I think with very positive results. Yeah, no, it's all great work. I think we need more of an emphasis in the non-pharmacologic realm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ADHD Across the Lifespan from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Vatsal Thacker, and joining us to discuss cognitive behavioral therapy for ADHD patients is Dr. Mary Salanto, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Director of the ADHD Center in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. So, Dr. Salanto, can you maybe walk me through what a typical whether it's individual or group CBT session looks like with someone with ADHD? Well, our sessions each focus on a particular strategy or issue. Then these can vary from things like time estimation, prioritization, initiating tasks in a timely manner, completing them, planning to complete long-term projects, Organizing oneself, setting up a filing system, for example, maintaining a filing system. So each session focuses on one or more of these specific kinds of strategies. And during the presentation piece, there's a lot of interaction, discussion, sharing, so that uh, we're sure that people are following, paying attention, they're integrating what we're saying, relating it to their own experiences. And we also have an in-session exercise to help consolidate and illustrate the principles. So, for example, when we're talking about organization, we will actually bring in a pile of papers from a typical desk, as they might accumulate it. We use materials from our own desks that we're discarding to kind of have this very realistic kind of exercise. And we'll have one of the participants come up and actually sort through this stuff using the kinds of principles, the self-instructions that we've discussed that they can apply to make decisions. Should this thrown out? Should it get filed? How would it get filed? We might have another exercise if we were talking about prioritizations. We would take one individual's plan for the week, things she needs to accomplish that are on the to-do list, and show on a weekly calendar how these things might be scheduled with respect to priority, the time that one estimates it will take, and so on. So when we're presenting these strategies and having people work them through, we also pay a lot of attention to helping people assimilate cues to promote generalization and maintenance of these games, as we've discussed the importance of. So We want people to begin to automatically generate certain thoughts that will, in the real world, cue the positive behaviors that we've been trying to inculcate. So people with ADHD are notorious for starting to use a planner but then failing to maintain it. They don't consult it. They kind of forget about it. And so many had just given up on using planners. But, you know, you can't really navigate through the week without one. So another example of a maxim that we repeat that we have people kind of learn to repeat to themselves is, if I'm having trouble getting started, then the first step is too big. And that's a self-cue to break down this more complex or aversive task into more manageable parts that they can achieve more easily and then be able to self-reinforce after completion of each. 
The final part of the session is a home exercise, and this is where people really begin to make change in their real lives and begin to practice and hopefully assimilate new habits. And we begin with tasks that are easy. For example, the first one is just to choose one task that would take less than an hour, prioritize, plan it, schedule it, and complete it. And we choose an easy task deliberately, of course, one that relates to the strategy that we're trying to convey, but we choose one deliberately that's easy so that people will feel more confident in attempting it, that we can begin to overcome this negative backlog of anticipation of failure and performance anxiety and demoralization that many people have. So if they can get started and find that they are able to actually accomplish this one thing, they are encouraged to begin to tackle you know, larger projects. Each session has an accompanying home exercise and they become more difficult, like planning a whole weekday or weekend day or using a flow chart to plan a larger task or project. And then the first part of each session, in fact, the first hour of the two-hour group session is devoted to a roundtable review of how people did with their home exercise. We troubleshoot. We talk about other strategies that might have been incorporated, what went wrong, what went right. We try to identify and address these negative self-defeating cognitions that many people have that generate their anxiety and depression so that we can help them to feel more positive about continuing to try to apply the strategies. Dr. Salanto, thank you very much for being our guest this week on ADHD Across the Lifespan. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to ADHD Across the Lifespan on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ADHD Across the Lifespan is produced in cooperation with APSART, the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, and sponsored by Concerta, a product of McNeil Pediatrics, division of Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts. It's 9 a.m., and John's ADHD is already causing problems at home work doesn't go much better. Once daily Concerta, methylphenidate hydrochloride is a step in the right direction for patients like John who need ADHD symptom improvement with a proven tolerability profile. Concerta offers smooth delivery of medication throughout the day and its compromise-resistant formulation may help discourage abuse. Abuse of methylphenidate may lead to dependence. Concerta is a Schedule II controlled substance. Concerta is already the number one ADHD medication prescribed for children and adolescents. Discover the benefits it can bring to adult patients with ADHD. Visit www.concerta360.com to find out more today and get online tools for diagnosing ADHD in adults. Concerta is indicated for the treatment of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. Important Safety Information Concerta should not be taken by patients with allergies to methylphenidate or other ingredients in Concerta, significant anxiety, tension, or agitation, glaucoma, Tourette's syndrome, tics, or family history of Tourette's syndrome, current or recent use of monomain oxidase inhibitors, MAOIs. Children under 6 years of age should not take Concerta. 
Abuse of methylphenidate may lead to dependence. Concerta should not be used in patients with known structural cardiac abnormalities, cardiomyopathy, serious heart rhythm abnormalities, coronary artery disease, other serious cardiac problems, or patients with pre-existing severe gastrointestinal narrowing. Use with caution in patients with hypertension and other cardiovascular conditions, psychosis, bipolar disorder, and history of seizures, EEG abnormalities. Stimulants may cause new psychotic or manic symptoms. Discontinuation of treatment may be appropriate. Aggressive behavior or hostility should be monitored in patients beginning ADHD treatment. Methylphenidate may produce difficulties with visual accommodation and blurring of vision. Hematologic monitoring is advised during prolonged therapy. Growth should be monitored during treatment with stimulants, and patients who are not growing or gaining height or weight as expected may need to have their treatment interrupted. The most common adverse reaction, greater than 5%, reported in children and adolescents was abdominal pain upper. The most common adverse reactions, greater than 10%, reported in adults were dry mouth, nausea, decreased appetite, headache, and insomnia. Concerta. Start here. Get there. Thank <laughs> you.